Welcome to Air Crash Investigation, the podcast. The show we dissect and discuss all things air crashes. I am your host, Zonaka Kai, and in today's episode, we will be talking about Saudi Air Flight 163. Now, if you haven't already, do not forget to like and subscribe if you are listening to us on YouTube. And if you are listening to us on like a podcast listening platform, please just rate us five stars because we are the best podcast in the world. But without wasting any more of your time, seeing as though this is going to be a really long episode, let us just get started. It is the greatest aviation mystery of all time. Lies a massive passenger jet and the remains of its 239 passengers and crew. Uh, good morning, we have uh, a smoke uh, uh, problem and we're doing emergency descent to level 150. In December 1988, a passenger airliner was bombed over Scotland in what was one of the largest pre-9-11 terrorist attacks. Saudi Air Flight 163 was a scheduled flight for the 19th of August 1980. This flight originated from Quaid-e-Azam International Airport, sorry if I said that wrong, now renamed Jinnah International Airport, Karachi, Pakistan, and its destination was Jeddah International Airport or King Abdulaziz International Airport in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Air Flight 163 had a stopover at Riyadh International Airport, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. The aircraft used was the Lockheed L-1011-200 TriStar. Finally, the call sign for Saudi Air Flight 163 was Saudi Air 163 or SVA 163. So do not be surprised when I refer to this aeroplane according to its call sign. The crew. The captain of this flight was Muhammad Ali Kowaita, who was 38 years old at the time of the crash. He was from Saudi Arabia and he was hired by Saudi Air in 1965. Throughout his career, he flew several aeroplanes such as the DC-3, DC-4, DC-9, Boeing 707 and Boeing 737s. In total, Kowaita obtained 7,674 flight hours with 388 hours on the accident aircraft, aka the Lockheed TriStar. The first officer was Sami Abdullah M. Hassanain, who was 26 years old at the time of the crash. He was also from Saudi Arabia and he joined the airline in 1977. In total, Hassanain had 1,615 flight hours with 125 hours on the Lockheed TriStar. The flight engineer was Bradley Curtis, who was 42 years old at the time of the crash. He was from the United States. He was hired by Saudi Air in 1974. Curtis was actually qualified to fly as a captain specifically on a DC-3, but something happened in terms of his training, but we'll talk about that later on in the episode. In total, Curtis obtained 650 flight hours with 157 hours on the TriStar. 
There were 287 passengers on board, with majority of them being Saudi and Pakistani. Majority of them were going to Mecca. The flight. Now before we continue, for this episode's sake, we will be using green which means time zone. I just wanted to let you know, I'm going to be referring to it as GMT. Saudi Air Flight 163 took off from Cade E. Azam, aka Jinnah International Airport, at 28 minutes to 2 p.m. from runway 15 left. This aeroplane was going to Riyadh International Airport for a stopover. This flight lasted 34 minutes and Saudi Air Flight 163 landed at 6 minutes past 2 p.m. Saudi Air Flight 163 was essentially stuck in Riyadh for about two hours due to the refueling process and a few passengers disembarked the plane. SVA 163 took off again at 8 minutes past 4 GMT. After leaving Riyadh, SVA 163 received instructions from air traffic control to reach a cruising altitude of 35,000 feet, 10,668 kilometers or 10,688 meters. The estimated time of arrival or ETA was 14 minutes past 6 p.m. GMT. Seven minutes into the flight, SVA's crew was made aware that there was smoke coming out of the plane's cargo compartment. For 4 minutes and 21 seconds, the crew of SVA Flight 163 was trying to confirm whether or not there was a fire. To do this, Flight Engineer Curtis decides to go to the cabin to try and confirm the smoke. At this point, SVA 163 was still climbing to 35,000 feet. After a few seconds or minutes, Captain Kowaita decides to declare an emergency. At this point, exactly at 20 minutes past 6 p.m. 17 seconds, First Officer Hassanein tells air traffic control and I quote, 163, we are coming back to Riyadh. The air traffic control asks First Officer Hassanein what the emergency was. He, being the First Officer, answers and I quote, we got fire in the cabin. Please alert the fire trucks, end quote. As soon as he said that, the air traffic controller gave Saudi Air 163 priority landing. This essentially means that Saudi Air Flight 163 is allowed to land first over any other aircraft. Saudi Air Flight 163 was only 78 miles or 125,52 kilometers away from Riyadh. The air traffic controller tries to gather more information and to do this, he asked the crew if the fire was in the engines. At 21 minutes past 6, 9 seconds, First Officer Hassanein responds, negative, in the cabin. The air traffic controller then asks how many passengers are on board. The First Officer responds, don't know exactly, think we have full load. At 21 minutes past 6, 53 seconds, Flight Engineer Curtis finally comes back into the cockpit and he tells Captain Kowaiter that there is just smoke in the cabin and no fire. At 23 minutes past 6, 4 seconds, Captain Kowaiter calls for the landing preliminary checklist. As they start to perform the landing checklist, another smoke detector warning sounds. So at this point, the crew was panicking. And after the smoke detector warning sounded, Captain Kowaiter instructs the other pilots to switch engine number 2 off. The other pilots tried to shut engine number 2 off, but this is unsuccessful as the thrust lever becomes jammed because the fire burnt through the operating cable. 
At around 25 minutes past 6.55 seconds, a flight attendant enters the cockpit and lets the pilots know that there was a fire in the cabin. Furthermore, the flight attendant says that, and I quote, There is no way I can go to the back to L2 and R2 because the people are fighting in the aisles, end quote. At 27 minutes past 6.40 seconds, the crew of Saudi Air Flight 163 announces in English, Arabic, and Urdu that, and I quote, Please, everybody sit down. Move out of the way. Everybody sit down. Move out of the aisles. There is no danger from the airplane. Everybody should stay in their seats. End quote. Of course, there was danger, but I'm sure the crew was just saying that there was no danger to try and calm everybody down. It didn't work. At 29 minutes past 6, a flight attendant comes back into the cockpit and says, and I quote, There is too much smoke in the back. After the flight attendant says this, the smoke detector warning sounds again. The crew quote-unquote ignored the warning and they were concerned with landing the plane. Whilst Saudi Air Flight 163 was descending, several witnesses saw smoke come out of the plane's tail. After a few minutes, Saudi Air Flight 163 touches down at Riyadh International Airport. The aeroplane taxis until it exits the runway. Air traffic control then asks the crew if they wanted to continue to taxi or shut down and evacuate. The crew respond and I quote, stand by, okay, we are shutting down the engines now and evacuating, end quote. The crew of Saudi Air Flight 163 shuts down their engines and this was when communication between the air traffic controller and the crew was lost. At this point, the aircraft was burning on the inside, but the fire itself was not visible on the outside. The firefighters on the ground are able to open the second door on the right, or R2, but the fire was too big and it was spreading so fast that no passenger could evacuate. The firefighters then start to extinguish the fire, but as they were doing so, guess what? The foam was depleted, meaning that the fire raged on. The firefighters were too late in trying to extinguish the fire and unfortunately everyone on board Saudi Air Flight 163 died. The investigation. The organization that was in charge of investigating the crash was the Presidency of Civil Aviation of Saudi Arabia, now renamed the General Authority of Civil Aviation or GACA. I'm going to be referring to it as GACA and not the Presidency of Civil Aviation. Now the airliner was Saudi Arabia's national carrier, therefore they were in charge. The National Transportation Safety Board or NTSB of the United States and the Transportation Safety Board or TSB helped GAC with the investigation. The crash site. When the investigators arrived at the crash site, they found that most of the aeroplane's fuselage was consumed by the fire. The floor of the cockpit collapsed into the cargo compartment. The autopilot component was nowhere to be found, but the other controls were damaged by the fire, but they were still there. The center engine was particularly consumed by the fire. All of the people on board died from smoke inhalation and they were subsequently burned to death. Captain Kowaita and First Officer Hassanein were buckled into their seats and therefore they had suffered burns to their bodies. Captain Kowaita and First Officer Hassanein were buried before any autopsy could be performed. 
Flight engineer Curtis was also found buckled into his seat. The investigators also looked at the bodies of the passengers and there was no evidence of quote-unquote crushing type injuries, end quote. They could only find bone fractures that were caused by muscle contractions and these muscle contractions were caused by the heat of the fire. Some of the passengers' bodies were fully clothed but almost all of the passengers suffered first-degree burns. Soot was also present in every passenger's trachea. Some of the gases that were present in the cabin and the cockpit were nitrous oxide, H2 cyanide, formic acid, acrolein, sulfur dioxide, halogen acids, ammonia, aldehyde rays, and so much more. And to wrap up this section, most of the passengers' bodies were found by the L2 and R2 doors, meaning that as soon as the firefighters were able to open the doors, the passengers flooded towards the doors to try and escape. I know flooded is like the worst word that I could use right now, but I couldn't think of anything else. Meteorological information. The weather at Riyadh International Airport was clear and the visibility was okay, so the weather was not a factor in the cause of this accident. Maintenance error. The investigators did tests on the mechanics of the plane, but they concluded that number one, no pre-existing wire damage existed, number two, no ground faults to metal harness clamps were present, and number three, no evidence of wet wire faults. Therefore, and I quote, the aircraft was certified and maintained in accordance with existing regulations. The fire. So when first engineer Curtis and a flight attendant were talking about the smoke and possible fire in the cabin, as I mentioned before, they were talking about the fire slash smoke in a general way. And they were not being specific. Like, for example, they were saying, like, the smoke or the fire was in the back of the cabin. But, like, where was it in the back of the cabin? Which part of the back of the cabin? And how strong was the smoke and the fire? Very, very vague. Now, as the investigators investigated even more, they saw that no one was really observing the smoke. Red flag. Furthermore, evidence showed that the part of the airplane that was severely damaged by the fire was the L3 door. The Lockheed TriStar was equipped with a ton of fire extinguishers, like 11 to be specific. However, some of the extinguishers were found with their safety wires intact. This means that the fire extinguishers were not discharged, aka used red flag number two. And unfortunately, most of the firefighters had malfunctioning equipment, meaning that they could not properly fight the fire. That's suspicious. That's weird. Now, the aircraft's firefighting and rescue procedures since i had said just recently that the firefighters had no equipment which makes no sense i am going to read you the crash fire rescue procedures in saudi as handbook pertaining to the accident here we go it's a long thing i hope you are ready all personnel operating directly in involved area of the crash should be provided with adequate protective clothing etc Rescue operations should be accomplished through regular doors and hatches wherever possible, but rescue and firefighting personnel must be trained in forcible entry procedures and be provided with necessary tools. Rescue of the aircraft occupants should proceed with the greatest possible speed. 
while care is necessary in the evacuation of an injured occupant so as to not aggravate their injuries, removal from the fire-threatened area is the primary requirement. Aircraft windows may often be used for ventilation. Some are designed to be used as emergency exits. On all aircraft, these exits are identified and have latch release facilities on both the outside and the inside of the cabin. Rescue and firefighting personnel. It will be their duty and responsibility to assist the crew members in any way possible. Since crew members' visibility is restricted, rescue and firefighting personnel should make immediate appraisal of the external portion of the aircraft and report any unusual conditions to the crew members. In the event the crew members are unable to function, the rescue and firefighting personnel will be responsible for initiating necessary action. End quote. So... As I have read all of that, I just have to say, the firefighters, I think out of all of that that I've said, they probably did one thing, and the one thing basically being that they opened the door, that still makes no difference, so it's like also another red flag to a red flag counting list. It just makes me mad, but like, you know, I'll tell you my opinions at the end. The cargo compartment. So the following information actually comes from the United States' Aeronautics and Space Code of Federal Regulations. Here we go. Cargo compartment classification. Class A cargo or baggage compartment is one in which, number one, the presence of a fire would be easily discovered by a crew member while at his station. Number two, each part of the compartment is easily accessible in flight. A Class B cargo or baggage compartment is one in which, number one, there is sufficient access in flight to enable a crew member to effectively reach any part of the compartment with the contents of a hand fire extinguisher. Number two, when the access provisions are being used, no hazardous quantity of smoke, flames, or extinguishing agent will enter any compartment occupied by the crew or passengers this is important but number three there is a separate approved smoke detector or fire detector system to give warning at the pilot or flight engineer station you're about to get mad to be honest but let's move on class c cargo or baggage compartment is one not meeting the requirements for either a class a or class b compartment but in which number one there is a separate approved smoke detector or fire detector system to give warning at the pilot number two there is an approved built-in fire extinguishing system controllable from the pilot or flight engineer stations Class D cargo or baggage compartment area is one in which, number one, a fire occurring in it will be completely confined without endangering the safety of the aeroplane or the occupants. Number two, ventilation and drafts are controlled within each compartment so that any fire likely to occur in compartment will not progress beyond safety limits. Now that we know how the fire would spread in different parts of the cargo hold, let us discuss cargo compartment 3 or C3 in particular. Now tests were actually conducted on the C3 smoke detector to see whether or not the system was malfunctioning because as I had mentioned, C3 also has a built-in 
smoke detector fire detector system that gives warning to the pilot directly. They concluded that the system was not malfunctioning, meaning that the pilots knew that there was smoke in the C-3 cargo hold. Furthermore, a flight attendant actually went into the cockpit and was like, Hey yo, there is smoke actually coming from the back. The back could be the cargo hold. We don't know at this point and I don't think we'll ever know. Now, there were a ton of fires on airplanes before Saudi Air Flight 163 because remember this flight actually took place in the 80s and, you know, safety in airplanes wasn't really the best. Therefore, Lockheed California changed several things on their airplanes. The laboratory vent bleed airline was rerouted to move it one inch away from the skin insulation and a protective clip was added. The C2 and C3 cargo heat exchange insulation was changed from a polyvinyl fluoride cover to a polyamide cover. Insulation was removed from the fuselage skin under the AFT laboratories to reduce the possibility of corrosion. This is a production change only. Now the origin of the fire. There were four probable areas as to where the fire originated from. The passenger cabin, the cheek area that is adjacent to the C3 cargo hold, the area that is directly outside the C3 cargo hold, or the C3 cargo hold itself. Now let us discuss each of these probable places as to where the fire could have started. Possible origin in passenger cabin. Now this is not considered as the origin of the fire because there were no reports of fire or smoke in the cabin. Large amounts of the smoke couldn't enter the compartment from the cabin without a huge fire being visible inside the cabin. And I am quoting this, a stuck throttle cable from a cable fire effect is improbable without the fire penetrating the cabin floor which is inconsistent with testing results, end quote. And finally, a cabin fire would progress too fast due to the seats and the material that the seats are made out of. Now the possible origin in the cheek area. This is improbable because there is insufficient fuel in the cheek area and the cheek area is actually too remote from the throttle cable to cause a stuck cable or to cause the burning of the cable which thus leads to the pilots not being able to switch engine number 2 off. Now the possible origin from C3 or the third cargo compartment or cargo hold. Now this one is actually probable because detectors from the C3 cargo hold actually gave the first warning of the smoke. The stuck throttle cable ran above the C3 cargo compartment meaning that that fire that was probably in the C3 cargo compartment could have burnt that throttle cable. There is like a ton of history in terms of fires originating from the cargo compartment where loose baggage and cargo is carried, which is C3. However, with all of this information, the investigators were not able to determine the specific source of the fire, but evidence did show that the fire might have started in C3. The flight and the actions that were made by the crew. Now, this is like very confusing, but I'm going to try and make it not confusing. So three minutes were actually spent looking for the cargo smoke warning procedure inside their little handbook. Now why did it take so long? Well, the manufacturers actually split the emergency and abnormal procedures 
to the emergency, abnormal, and additional procedures inside that handbook. Furthermore, flight engineer Curtis actually was suffering from dyslexia or he had dyslexia rather. Now this is a condition that causes confusion of switches, actions, etc. Captain Kohaita was actually solely focused on flying the aeroplane during the descent and he did not want to share or delegate duties to the first officer or flight engineer. He was just hogging the control and like why? We'll never know. Flight engineer Curtis might have actually underestimated the situation and he probably was confusing the pilot because every single time the pilot was like oh is there fire in the cabin or like oh is there a problem in the cabin he'd be like oh it's no problem nothing's wrong and that might have confused everyone else furthermore captain kawaita actually lacked confidence and he wasn't really assertive telling people or like delegating duties to other people which might have led to the crash of this plane it's not really crash but we're just gonna call it a crash Captain Kowaita also didn't call for evacuation after he landed the plane and, you know, the putting of oxygen masks by the cabin and the passengers. Now, this crew, as you can hear, is a mess, like a ton. It's like a whole mess. And I just have to say that through thorough research, I found that all three of the pilots actually had a problem with their training. Captain Kowaita, he was regarded as a slow learner because he had difficulty learning these procedures and he had problems upgrading to captain. First officer Hassanein actually didn't finish his training because he wasn't on the accident aircraft for one whole year and he failed flight school once upon a time so he was removed from the school. And flight engineer Curtis, he actually had to wear glasses for near and distant vision. That is not really a problem. However, he was actually assigned to train further in either Boeing 707 or 737 to be a captain, but he failed to qualify as captain or first officer as he did not meet the requirements. This is like the worst crew you could ever have in the history of aviation. Now the conclusion. So the crew was, according to this final report, it says that the crew was properly certified, but I highly doubt that. The fire probably started in the C3 cargo hold. There was no detectable evidence of a pre-fire fault in the aircraft systems. The operator's emergency and abnormal checklist procedures were not adequately indexed for quick identification. The captain did not brief the crew about the evacuation plans and the crash fire rescue personnel were not equipped or trained to do their job. So the probable cause of this accident was the start of the fire in the C3 cargo hold and the contributing factors were the captain's failure to prepare the crew for landing, evacuation, or the putting on of oxygen masks, the failure of the CFR or crash fire rescue personnel, and I would like to add my own one in there, the lack of training for the crew as to what to do in case of a fire. Now the recommendations set out by the GACA, the NTSB, and the TSB. Revise all existing training and bring additional programs for all people that were involved, meaning that the crew, the flight attendants, and even the firefighters. 
they should be assertive and command training for all junior Saudi air captains and first officers. They should amend Saudi air's personnel policy and practices. They should stop the rehiring of flight crew members and by they I mean Saudi air. Saudi air should review and amend all emergency procedures and finally Saudi air should improve their surveillance and direction of the cargo handlers and the cargo hold itself and that is the end of today's episode i really do hope that you enjoyed it i really did have fun with this one surprisingly overall i do believe that the pilot's role in all of this as much as the fire is to blame i also think that the crew is to blame because if they were properly trained then they could have stopped the death of so many people because i'd like to believe that the people actually survived the initial crash they just could not get out of the plane in time and if we're being honest i think i'm pushing it a little bit i think that none of these people none of the crew the flight engineer the captain the first officer should have been pilots in the first place i think as soon as they failed or like they were slow learner or they were just like not upgrading as they should be i think that should have been a red flag automatically and being like yeah these people should not be pilots they really shouldn't and the firefighters they only had one job just put out the fire and they did none of that so overall this case is really really sad and i really do hope that we have learned a lot from this I really do hope. Either way, thanks so much for listening once again. Do not forget to like and subscribe if you're listening to us on YouTube. And if you're listening to us on a podcast listening platform, do not forget to give us five stars or like rate us the highest that you can. Don't forget to follow. Do not forget to like this episode. And I will catch you in the next one. Cheers.